Well, Father, what a privilege is ours now to take our Bibles and to open them and to receive a word from you. Thank you, Father, for the fact that you love us, and that you have a plan for us, and that that plan is fulfilled through faith by grace in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Father, you always encourage us as we gather together, and often it is the case that um, you use your word to probe and to pry and to confront us with the realities of our lives. Father, we would thank you this morning for the fact that um, you have given us glimpses even of the future in your Bible for us. And so as we continue our study on things that are yet unfulfilled, would you please give us a growing understanding, give us a conviction, give us a willingness to surrender to your word and to live prepared lives waiting for your return. Speak to us now, we pray. Use your Holy Spirit, use the scalpel of your word, and accomplish your purposes in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's uh, throw back for just a minute to World War II history. You remember that Pearl Harbor had been bombed. The Pacific Fleet was in shambles and dry dock and being rebuilt. The European theater, do you remember this? in your history classes, young people. The European theater was taking all of much of the resources of the United States and the Allied forces. And things had gotten so bad in the Philippines that General Douglas MacArthur, who was in charge of the Pacific theater, had to leave and flee for his life. He took his wife and his little boy. They'd left on an open skiff, met a submarine out in the ocean, and escaped in the dark of night, leaving hundreds of thousands of American and allied forces on the islands. Things got very, very difficult for the next year and a half or so. It took a while to rebuild. But do you remember this picture? Does that bring a bell? Do you remember what Douglas MacArthur said before he left? On radio, they broadcast a speech, and he said, I shall return. And do you know that people believed him? And people counted on that. And it seemed at times as if he, was, he were never coming back. And there was tremendous, um, tremendous casualties that took place from the Japanese forces as they overwhelmed the islands. But do you know, even the, the Filipino resistance and the underground guerrilla forces, along with allied forces, fought tooth and nail. This was the time when the March on Bataan took place and that kind of thing. And then one day he came, and I think Douglas MacArthur, General MacArthur, had the good sense to get his photographer out of the boat first and uh, take a good picture of this and get on the front page of every paper. But he did what he said, didn't he? He said, I will return. People believed him. People set their sights on that. People found sustaining strength in holding out for the fact that he would come back and they would turn the course of the war. And indeed, that is what happened. You know, I have in my mind that that is a similar feeling, a similar mindset that believers in the Lord Christ live with today. We spent some time last Sunday as we've begun our Study here, if you're new with us today, on the return of Christ and the events of the last days of the world. We recognize that a lot of people are very skeptical about these things, even making a mockery of them. 
But the word of God is without question, authoritatively speaks to this point. And Jesus himself told his disciples in John 14, didn't he? I will come again and receive you unto myself. And we talked about in Acts chapter 1, where the angels stood there as the disciples watched our Lord go up into heaven. And the angels left them with the word, this same Jesus who's going up before you will come again. And ever since that time, believers everywhere and other reinforcements in his word encourage and teach us to watch for his coming. Do you believe it? Does it sustain you? Does it motivate you to keep persevering? Well, today we're continuing to build the foundation of our sermon series for the summer. And we want to talk about an interesting aspect of the Lord's return that I want to make sure everyone understands before we move on. Because we're going to be referencing this event in the future. And it occurs to me that there could be a good many people that have no idea what we're talking about. Before we turn to our text, and you can turn there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, though. And before we begin to build a groundwork for this event, this event, by the way, we call the rapture of the church. This is the event that a lot of people like to talk about. It's the event that a book series was written on called Left Behind, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. It was really popular. A lot of people read it. I think our church had about 17 sets donated to our church library. There's just everybody bought it. Everybody got into the series written by Tim LaHaye and, and uh, Jerry Bridges. Was it Bridges, Jerry? Jenkins, Jenkins. Bridges, another guy, of course. And this rapture has a lot of interest to it. And the series was called Left Behind, and we'll talk in a minute uh, about why it was named that. But before we go there, and before we look at our text in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I would like to take a few minutes of our message time, and I would like to just help us picture in our minds on kind of a timeline the, the history of the Bible, which is the history of, of, of the human race, really. And so let's go right back to the beginning and let's just remind ourselves of the story of our Bible. Did you notice the apple on the tree here? The, it's the fruit. It's not necessarily an apple. And so this, of course, represents what? This is creation and the Garden of Eden. And we've spent a lot of time here. Adam and Eve are created. It's not good for the man to be alone. God gives him Eve. The, the serpent comes, tempts. There's sin, the fall of man. Okay, so we have creation and fall. And the next about 2,000 years is an is a epoch or era of time that I want us to just name law, L-A-W, law. Will you say that with me? Law, law. Here's why. Remember, we don't have a written word completely yet. God begins to speak through the patriarchs. Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so forth. And then God speaks through his prophets. And then the prophets begin to write down under the inspiration of Scripture, Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations and Lamentations wasn't a prophet, okay? Isaiah and Jeremiah, they begin to write down, I think that's a funny joke, nobody else does. But we'll call this law, that's why we put a big book up here. Because remember God took Moses up on the mountain, he gave him his, his commandments it, the first set didn't last very long. Remember what happened by the time he got down? The people had stripped off their clothes and were dancing and carrying on around the golden calf. 
Joshua asks him what to do. Moses goes berserk and smashes the stones down in temper and wants God to judge all the people. And God says, no, 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 we'll be all right here. And so forth it goes. But God begins to speak and we write it down. And this is the time, uh, some of you know a little bit about this, others of you, it's kind of new. This is the time where for the forgiveness of sin, there were atoning sacrifices. Sometimes the father would, or the priest would put his hands on a goat. One, one uh, sequence of events was called the scapegoat. And um, they would transfer visually and symbolically the sins of themselves and the people on the heads of the goat, and one goat would be killed, the other one would be let set free, and there was lots of symbolism, and God is speaking through, through His Word, but it's a, it's a difficult time, and there's, um, it, it's characterized by law, and the law is hard to keep, and the whole point is, we can't keep God's law! And the law was given so that we could see that there's none righteous, no, not one. And so this, this sequence of time from, from basically from creation through the time of the law is somewhere probably around two to 4,000 years in there, really, if you want to put it all down there. The kings and all that happened. David kills Goliath. That's why he could kill Goliath. God is still using people as instruments of his wrath and righteous judgment. And so that's why we don't go down to some wicked establishment and take our swords and, and make the blood flow and kill them all. We don't do that anymore. That was all under law. But then, there was a silent period, wasn't there? That's the blank pages between the Old and New Testament. And from law to the New Testament, from the, this is Old Testament or law to the New Testament, there's 400 silent years right here. 400 silent years. God doesn't speak. God doesn't reveal them. There's no prophets writing down a word from God. Man hasn't heard from God. Just what we have under law. Just what he's spoken through the prophets of the past. But then Galatians 4.4, at just the right time, in God's timetable, what happens? Born of a woman, right? Jesus comes, and that's why we have the manger here. It's empty because he's not there. He's already gone back to heaven. But the baby is born, and this is the first coming of Christ. And then we have 33 years, essentially, from manger to cross, to the tomb, to the resurrection, to the ascension 40 days later. So basically, the life of Christ. And we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John going right here, right? And, and then everything changes, doesn't it? Because when Jesus came, He became the fulfillment of the law. All of these animal sacrifices that are so hard for us to understand, the sheep and, and the, the, the calves that were slaughtered and the little pigeon and, and the, the different kinds of um, meal and grain offerings and all kinds of things. The book of Leviticus. You know, you usually just don't have your devotions there, do you? It's just tough stuff. All of that is a picture of how Jesus would become sin for us. And he would become the ultimate sacrificial lamb. And once for all, he fulfills the law. And where God had been showing us that we cannot keep the law, there is one who kept the law perfectly and he kept it for us. That's amazing grace. That his righteousness then can be transferred over to me and my sinfulness can be transferred over to him and now I can stand before God just. Hallelujah, that's my salvation by grace through faith. Can't do any works, can't do anything about it. So 33 years and during that time Jesus is training his disciples, remember? And then they move out after the great resurrection week or two there when they finally get their bearings and figure things out from hiding and cowering in the upper room with doors locked, they realize it's true. 
He really was God in the flesh. And they go out and preach the gospel. And the Holy Spirit comes, Acts chapter 2. And this starts a whole new era that we call sometimes the church era. That's why I have a communion table and a, and a church. We also characterize this era now from the resurrection through to the coming of the Lord, which is still down here. This time frame, we characterize it with the word grace. So say law again, ready? Law, and this is grace, all right? This is works. This is Christ, the fulfillment of all, our, all these works. Something else you need to know that we're... I'm just going to throw this out there to get it in your head a little bit. But you need to think about the fact that during all of this time, what is the nationality, what is the people group through whom God is, is working? The Jews, Israel, the Israelites, right? And what happens is he puts that on hold. All right, that all kind of comes to an end. They have scattered, they've, re they've rejected. He's come unto his own, and his own received him not. And then the heaven portals open, and it's a time of grace. And you need to understand, this is what I want to throw out there. And we'll, we'll try to understand this later in, a, in another message. But one of the things that Bible students talk about, and, and this is in Scripture, is that this is a time frame over here that... God is dealing with Israel, and we, we sometimes use an expression of keeping time that is a biblical thing, and I'll show it to you eventually, and it's 69 weeks have taken place here. 69 weeks of years have gone by, all right? But then the 69th week comes to an end, and now there's like a parenthesis. It's like the church age. It's, it's grace. You, you need no more proof than just thinking about David killing Goliath in, in this section under law, David kills Goliath. In this section, the new David, Jesus, doesn't kill Goliath. He turns his cheek. It's all different. And God isn't specifically working through his people Israel. He's working through his church. Do you appreciate being part of the church? Do you know what it is to be under grace, to have this Savior who carried my sin, and I'm born again, and I'm a new creation in Christ? And we're part of a church that is around the world and God is at work in all kinds of people in all kinds of places. That's why it's so great. Have you ever traveled and just run into believers in the Lord Christ? I mean, you might not dot your I's and cross your T's all the same, but you've all been to Calvary. You've all been to the cross. And it's like they're brothers and sisters in Christ and you run into them in an airport in, in Johannesburg, South Africa. And it's like, man, it's like we knew each other for a long time. You run into them in Poland on a trip or in Alaska on the banks of the Yukon River. And there they are, some toothless old grandma Eskimo woman praising Jesus and your spirit's knit and you're part of the church. And grace, it's a precious thing, isn't it? It's a beautiful thing. And God is at work in his church. And we have communion and we celebrate the Lord Jesus, and we gather together, and we've done a good job building buildings, but the church is people, right? Not buildings. So we have law, and we have, what is this one? Grace, all right? And here's where we are. And how long is this period of time going to last? Does anybody know? And if anybody predicts when it's going to come to an end, what are you going to say? Bah humbug, all right? And we know that our Bible tells us you cannot predict the time. 
and that the Lord is standing. I got convicted last week in the second service. I have to tell you, I said that Harold Camping was an idiot, and I said it from the pulpit. And I want to, I wanna, in all sincerity, apologize for that, and I'm trying not to use that word from the pulpit or any other time. And I'll tell you partly why I was convicted, parentheses in the message here. In James chapter 5, there is a passage there about the imminent return of Christ. We talked about it last week. And in James 5, around verse 11, he said for us to watch our words and not judge our brothers because our King Jesus is standing at the door ready to come and that he'll carry out all the judgment we need. And so I wanted to say I was sorry for saying that last week. I think he was very foolish. I think he was very misguided. But it was not, it was not a proper thing for me to call him an idiot. Okay, And I'll keep my thoughts like that to myself more in the future. But in the multitude of words, Proverbs says what? There lacketh not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. All right. So in about 29 more minutes, I'll refrain my words. Okay. <laughs> so we have law and Jesus. We have the church age. The apostles are going out and about. And then the next event is the event I want us to talk about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And it's very basic this morning because, as I said, I think that a lot of us have no idea what this is. And this symbol represents the next event, the rapture of the church. And I'll explain it more in just a few minutes. Let's go to our text. Let's get into God's word before our clock goes away from us. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we begin with verse 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13. And we'll read to the end of chapter 4. And I want you to see that the Apostle Paul is teaching the Thessalonian believers specifically an aspect about the Lord's return in a special context. Here we go. He writes brothers, and that means believers in the Lord Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers, believers in Christ, church, we do not want you to be ignorant or uninformed. Okay? We don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Let's just stop right there. Let me explain that just a little bit. There's a couple things you need to, that some people might be confused about. The word sleep here is not used for somebody who's taking a nap or asleep or sick. It is a phrase, it is a word that is used in our New Testament repeatedly for believers in the Lord Christ who have passed away or are dead. Part of the reason is, is because of this event we're talking about. It's as though they just went to sleep and they're going to rise again. This brings great comfort to the believer, even though we suffer grief at the loss of our loved ones. And that's why he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about this and about those who fall asleep. And I don't want you to grieve, verse 13, like the rest of men who have no hope. Have you ever been to the funeral of a people who have no hope of eternal life in Christ? It is pitiful. They will wail. They will not want to leave the cemetery. They will lay over the top of the body. They, they, will, they will break blood vessels in their neck, crying and screaming and wailing, especially if it's a, a younger person. Why? I have stood at the cemetery off to the side with people that I have been called upon to do their funerals and I don't know them that well, but I know that they are Christless people and I need no more evidence than to stand off to the side and watch them grieve at the graveside. They have no hope. It's gone. It's over. But Paul says to the Thessalonian believers, not you. I want you to understand, 
And you need to understand one other thing about this verse. This is, the, this is kind of a key introductory verse to this section because the Apostle Paul is answering a question that the Thessalonian believers have. Now remember where we are on our timeline. We're just a little ways past Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit is now indwelling men. Scripture is coming together little by little. Peter's out preaching. John and James are out preaching. Paul's had his Damascus Road experience. He's planting churches. But man, we're just a few years into the age of grace. Everything's different. Everything's new. And God's word is still being written down by the apostles in this church planting era. And Paul has been to Thessalonica... And he has taught them a number of things in a short amount of time. And then he has left and his sidekick, Timothy, has been back with them and he's coming back. And he said they have a lot of questions. And one of the things that Paul evidently taught them, and we see this reflected in 2 Thessalonians as well, is that, and in this passage, that the Lord could come back at any time and you need to be ready and we're excited about the Lord's return. And then what happened in the first Bible church in Thessalonica is one of the believers in the Lord Christ died. Oh no! We're here waiting for the Lord's return and now we've got to go bury our loved one. Are they going to miss the Lord's return? What's going on here? I thought we were all, the Lord was coming back. In fact, he promised when he went up, he was coming back. And they didn't know, and they, what's going on here? There was another nuance of problem that we'll talk about later, and that is they were beginning to suffer some major persecution. And it becomes pretty clear when you look at 2 Thessalonians along with 1 Thessalonians and put that with a couple other passages you recognize that they were confused because Paul had taught them that Christ was going to come before the worst of the persecution. And it was getting so bad that they thought they missed it. Our people are dying. The Lord hasn't come back. Have we missed it? Is the Lord coming? We're being persecuted. What's going on here? And so the Apostle Paul writes to them and he says, I do not want you to be uninformed about your loved ones who have fallen asleep. That would be believers in the Lord Christ, back to our text, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive and who are left till the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. And everybody make note of this. Where are we going to meet him? In the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. And we'll stop right there for our text. I want to give about six basics about the rapture. Six basics about the rapture that we need to understand so that in the future, and in the future, what's going to happen is we're going to move our timeline down the platform and we're going to shove the church age clear out there and we'll put the coming of the Lord down there and we're going to build some symbols up here to tell us about the end times because everything that the juice, everything that everybody's really interested about, it's over here. It's going to be in here. Revelation chapter 6 through 19, you know, a third of the earth burning up, scorpion-like creatures pouring out of black holes out of the earth, all kinds of crazy things, 666, the mark of the beast, the Antichrist, it's all over here. 
Now, one of the things I want to say before we move on is that when we take our Bibles and we study prophecy and we look at God's Word, and I'm just going to name them right now, and we will, we will be having messages where we will cover them much more thoroughly. But if we take the texts that talk about the Lord's return, a funny thing kind of happens. For example, we could look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 30 is a passage. Don't turn there unless you want to, but we're not going to look there right now. Matthew 24, 9 through 30 is a specific passage where Jesus is talking about his return. And you'll notice in that passage that it's a warning passage that people are fleeing for their lives even God's people, it's just a crazy time. There's a lot of bloodshed. Um, the angels go out to the four corners of the earth and gather in God's people and so forth. And it's just all kinds of events that doesn't sound anything like this event that Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4. You can go to the end of the story to Revelation chapter 19 and you have a similar thing. Revelation 19, 11 through 21, that's where the great... The great I am comes out on the, the, the war horse from heaven. And Jesus himself comes out in the sky and all of God's people, the armies of heaven are with him. And the sky opens and the, the earth, the armies of the earth have assembled against Israel. And they want to blow Israel off the map. And the skies are going to open and Jesus is going to come. And that's where it says, with the sword of his mouth, he wipes them out. And it doesn't sound anything like what Paul's talking about here in 1 Thessalonians 4. And you can go to Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 through 9, and it talks similar about the same thing. There's like warfare, there's the nations of the earth assembling, and then the sky opens and Jesus comes back, and there it even says that his feet are going to hit the top of the Mount of Olives and it's going to split in half. And that he's going to take over the whole earth then and rule himself on the earth. And it just doesn't sound anything like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 when the Apostle Paul begins to teach about this event called, that we call the rapture of the church. And so that leads us to basic number one about the rapture. And that is that this is based on what I'm calling number one, special information. Special information. Let's, load, let's go to our text. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Okay, you need to know that that was why he's writing this. He's writing this to comfort them more than he's writing them to tell them doctrinal truth about the coming of the Lord. But in writing to comfort them about the death of their loved ones, he tells them about the rapture. And that's how we found out. I said to Janet the other day, I said, wouldn't it be great... If in our Bibles we could turn to a passage and there was a bullet point of every event of the last days, exactly how it's going to unfold, and it was just like click, 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 click. But interesting enough, God in his sovereign oversight of the Holy Spirit inspiring the Word of God, he gives us snapshots and snippets scattered out throughout the Scripture so that we have to dig and study. He didn't put it all in one list for us. And so the Apostle Paul gives us some snippets about an event that I'm calling special information because look what he says. Verse 15. 
According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive and who are left to the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. I want to point out the phrase, according to the Lord's own word. What's he saying? He's saying that Jesus himself has revealed this to them. But the interesting thing is, when you study your Bible, there's nothing like this that Jesus says. And so somewhere along the line, somebody received revelation from Jesus and wrote it down and either told Paul or it was Paul himself. And this is like a new insight. You don't have to take the time to turn there. We'll turn there in a minute, I think. In 1 Corinthians 15, let's do it right now and you can mark it with a piece of paper. 1 Corinthians 15, but I want you to mark it. 1 Corinthians 15, he talks again about this same event. It has to be a parallel teaching on it. Because the, the events line up so much. 1 Corinthians 15.51, look at the phrase that he uses here as he's teaching the church at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 15.51. Listen, Paul says, I tell you a mystery. A mystery in the New Testament is a truth that up to this point has not been made known, but now it is being revealed. Okay, it is a truth that up to this point has not been made known, but now it is being revealed. And so in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, according to the Lord's own word, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I'm telling you a mystery. And, and I'm telling you that I believe that part of what's happening here is the Apostle Paul is teaching a nuance of what we call the second coming, but it's, the second coming entails a lot more events than just one thing. And this is the first part of it. And he says, this is special information. This is a mystery. We shall not all sleep, according to the Lord's. We who are still alive and remain till the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Let's quickly move on by looking up above that verse to point number two, and that this basic understanding of the rapture, not only is this, the Apostle Paul says, special information, but this is number two, has a doctrinal foundation. It has a doctrinal foundation, and it's the very resurrection of Christ, and I take that to include even his ascension, that is the model for this. He says that in verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. One of the things he wants you to understand is that the very death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ... The believer is identified with it, and this teaching is related to our salvation and our identity with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It's special information. It has a doctrinal foundation. But let's move on to number three. You need to see also here that they are living with expectation. Number three, they are living with expectation. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 15 again. According to the Lord's own word, the Apostle Paul says... We tell you that we who are still alive. And look at verse 17. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together. And so we will ever be with the Lord. Don't you see that the Apostle Paul expected this to happen at any time? That the Thessalonian believers, they were ready for it. It was imminent. It's going to happen. They lived with a sense of expectation. Do you? Do you? Do you ever find yourself in a situation and you say to yourself, I sure hope the Lord doesn't return right now. <laughs> or maybe it's like this. You find yourself in a situation and you say, I really wish the Lord would return right now. Huh? 
Are you thinking about it? These believers did. The Apostle Paul did. All right, so this is some special information with a doctrinal foundation based on the resurrection of Christ. They're living with expectation. Now let's get to the part that we um, like to look at. Verse 4. I want you to see that there is an amazing translation. There is an amazing translation. Look what the Apostle Paul is teaching here, starting again with verse 15. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. I take it from this teaching that if words mean anything, there is a generation of people living someday who will never die. Do you like that concept? It could be our generation because there's going to be this translation. Remember that this is not a new concept in Scripture. Enoch did it, didn't he, right? Enoch was caught up. Elijah was caught up. By the way, let's get our word rapture out and let's figure out where that comes from. Do you know that the word rapture is not in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. So where did it come from? Look down, put your eyes down at verse 17 and notice where it says that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together. The word caught up in the Greek is a word that when they translated the Greek New Testament into the Latin, the Latin Vulgate, does that ring a bell at all with people? When they translated it from Greek instead of coming into English, they went to Latin. They translated a word caught up, a Greek word that means snatched away, caught up, snatched away. They translated it in the, in the Latin, a word that sounds like something like this, and I don't know Latin, rapturo, rapturo, a Latin word that means to be snatched away, to be caught up. This word is used in Acts chapter 8, I believe it is. I have to find it in my notes. But in Acts chapter 8, it is used about when Stephen... Do you remember the story when, when Stephen... Philip. When Philip came alongside the Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot... Do you remember that story in Acts? I believe it's chapter 8. And he's riding along. This Ethiopian political official is riding in his chariot, trotting along, and he's reading the prophet Isaiah. And God sends Philip over to him and he comes running evidently, trotting up alongside this chariot that's just kind of plodding along down a desert road. And he says, what you reading? And the guy says, I'm reading Isaiah. And he said, well, what does he say? And he said, I wish I knew. I wish I had somebody who would explain it to me. And Philip says, may I explain it to you? And so he steps up on his chariot and he leads him to Christ. And you remember that story? And the man believes. And then it said that Philip left and it said that he was caught away. He was snatched away. And we teach that in Sunday school. He just disappeared. I take it the guy looked down at his scroll again, looked up, where did that guy go? He was gone. He was snatched away. It means rapturo, raptured. And so that's where we've coined the English word from it, rapture, to be snatched away. And so this is the translation right there. We'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So we have an arrow pointing up. That's believers in Christ only. No pagans allowed in this one. It's Christ coming in the air 
and we will meet the Lord in the air. Did you see it there? And there's a translation. And then we will go be with the Lord. And so we symbolize it with this symbol right here. We are caught up and we meet the Lord in the air. No feet hitting the top of the mountain. No sword coming out of his mouth right then. He's gathering his church unto himself. It's the amazing translation. 1 Corinthians 15.51 then leads us We'll flip over there to point number five. Not only is there an amazing translation, but in this event, there is an instant transformation. An instant transformation. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Look what he says. He said, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, die. There will be a generation that will never die. They will be translated. But we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. That's interesting, isn't it? In the, in the NIV, it translates the word, in a flash. I think in the King James, it's translated, in a moment. That comes from a Greek word that we got our word Adam from. We thought it was the, the, the most indivisible particle. It was an indivisible. In other words, in a time frame that is indivisible. It's the shortest amount of time possible. In a flash, in a blinkling, in a blink, in a twinkling of an eye. So I take it that this event that Paul's talking about, that there will be this great translation. And did you notice the dead in Christ will rise first? Let's think about that for a minute. You go to the cemetery and you bury your loved one and you say, well, what is that all about? The dead in Christ will rise first. I wanted to say something earlier about sleep. Our loved ones in Christ have not been asleep in the grave. Their Bible does not teach soul sleep. Make sure you have that straight. There is no Bible teaching called soul sleep. Okay? That is partly a, a, a result of the word sleep being used in our New Testament. But our loved one is not asleep in the sense that their body and their soul and their spirit are all shut down waiting for, ju for judgment day or waiting for the resurrection day. But Paul said clearly in 2 Corinthians 5 and Philippians chapter 1 to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But we know that we buried their body. Listen, the Bible clearly teaches in multiple passages a resurrection of the body. And that our body, and in 1 Corinthians 15 is one of those passages, this body right now is made for this earth. But it's not fit for heaven. It's not a celestial body. And so one of the things that has to do is our body has to die, like a seed goes in the ground, and it decays, but it sprouts, and out of it comes a new body. Listen, I can't explain this stuff. I just know that 1 Thessalonians 4 says that the dead in Christ are going to rise first. So that's one of the great hope the hopes of the believer, when we go to the cemetery with our loved ones and we bury them, we walk away from the cemetery and I can picture exactly where my mom and dad are in Michigan and my brother next to them in the sandy soil up there in a little country cemetery. And I take it. I don't know if the ground is going to pop open. I don't know if the vault is going to come out or if it's going to be like it's physical. So I take it. Something has to happen. But God can work out those details. And I'm not embarrassed to believe something I can't explain but these dead bodies are going to pop out of the ground somehow. I don't know exactly what that'll look like. They will rise first. I know that it raises all kinds of funny questions. I used to make hay with this one when I was a youth pastor. And I'd talk about the shark that ate the guy that got thrown overboard out in the ocean. And then he would all the way across the ocean floor. How's God going to resurrect that guy? I don't know. 
He tasted like peanut butter in Reese's cup, by the way. But um, all I know is there's going to be a translation. The dead go first, then we who are alive are caught up together. And following that, at that moment, in a twinkling of an eye, is an instant transformation. And to understand that body, turn really quickly to Philippians chapter 3. Will you please? Just turn back a few pages to Philippians chapter 3 and look at verse 20. Paul talks about this as well. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 about this instant transformation. Philippians 3:20 and 21. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's waiting for the Savior. Verse 21, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Do you like that verse? I used to think my body was going to last a long time. And I have been amazed. I used to think it was silly to think, how can people say they can't even bend over and tie their shoes? And now my ankles and feet are going bad and I sit in a, if I sit in a chair for a while, it's like I get out of my chair and I got to go like this for a while to get my feet going. It's like I need grease fittings put in there. I'm not even 51. These bodies don't last. And we're going to get a glorious body. A body to be understood as though it were the resurrection body of Christ. We are not going to be deity, but it's going to be like Christ's resurrection body. So there's going to be this phenomenal graves pop open. In a moment, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, I don't know if, if the pagans are going to hear it. They evidently will see the results of it. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. I mean, if words mean anything, I don't know what else to do with this passage. The dead are coming out and we're going to follow and we're going to get our glorious body. And I take this to be the end of the parenthesis between the 69th week of Daniel and the 70th week of Daniel. And the church age comes to an end and grace is over. And there it is. So there's the translation, there's the transformation. Notice he ends the passage with a specific application. They are caught up together with the cl- in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. It is encouraging, isn't it? I, listen, I can't explain every nuance of this. I even think and wouldn't be afraid to say this is bizarre stuff. But what is Paul teaching if he's not teaching a specific event that evidently precedes the full-fledged second coming of Christ where the church is caught up to be with the Lord? We're going to look more in detail at these events and how they unfold. But when we say the rapture, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the snatching up of the church. And this is where the title for the book series, Left Behind, comes in. Because the church, believers in the Lord Christ, are caught up, snatched up, rapturo, raptured, snatched away. And in the process, we are transformed. But there are many people around the world left behind. And this is when the tribulation period begins, the great tribulation, it gets worse, Antichrist will rule the world. There will be one world religion. There will be one world currency and so forth. And there will be a one world hatred against Israel. 
And this will last, I believe, seven literal years. Okay? We'll talk more about that in the future. Well, what do we want to remind ourselves as we go home? This is an unusual teaching. It's special information with a doctrinal foundation. Are you living with expectation is a question we want to ask ourselves. What an amazing translation being caught up without dying, people left behind to receive our glorious bodies. Instant transformation. Can I say this as we close out? Is there anything more important that you could do for your family than make sure they know that you know Jesus as your Savior? What kind of funeral would your family have for you if you died today? What kind of funeral? Do they, would they stand at your graveside and say, you know what, we hate to lose him. Hopefully they'll say that. We hate to lose this guy. It really makes us sad. But one day, the ground's going to break open. Eugene and Kay, my mom and dad, out of that sandy soil are going to come up. And I'm going to meet them in the air. That's our great hope. I know it's weird, but there it is. Are you included or will you be left behind? Because I want to tell you something. It is not a good thing to be left behind. Oh, there's believers in the Lord Christ that will be there. Most of them get their head cut off. I don't know if it's literal or symbolic, but they get killed. Why don't you today make sure that your family knows you're born again, that you've transferred your sinfulness to Jesus, who took it to the cross, and you've received the righteousness from him that is not your own, that is only available to you by faith, where you believe it to be true for you, and you take that in, and this is what I'm counting on. If that's not you today, it doesn't matter how much life insurance you're going to leave your family. It doesn't matter if you get your will prepared. It doesn't matter if you leave a clean Cadillac. It doesn't mean if your garage is clean. It doesn't mean anything if when they put you in the ground, they walk out of that cemetery wondering if they'll ever see you again or if the trumpet sounds and we're left and you're left behind when everybody goes. I heard a story of a kid who came home from college on Saturday, May 21st, when Harold Camping said the world was ending. They were believers in Christ, and so his mom and dad took their clothes and one set of his dad's clothes and laid them out on the one end of the couch where he always sits, and they took a set of his mom's clothes and laid them out on one end of the couch. And the boy came walking in from college, his mom and dad hid, and they left their clothes laid out on the couch on Saturday evening, May 21st. So you're messing with my mind now. I'll tell you something. It's one thing to play jokes on one another. It's one thing to ha-ha play a joke. But I'm going to tell you something. It won't be a ha-ha play a joke if, if believers in Christ everywhere van vanish into thin air and graves are opened. And I don't have any clue how the world and how CNN and Fox News are going to explain that event. I don't know. We can speculate. But I know that if you're left behind, it'll be majorly tragic. Let's bow in prayer. Before I pray, would you just examine your heart and make sure you're right with God today? Have you put your sin over on Jesus by faith, knowing that he died for your sin and 
Have you received his righteousness by faith, by grace, through faith? You do that just by believing, by telling him, God, I'm a sinner. Today, I put my faith and trust in Christ alone and what he's done for me. Make sure you do that, my friend. Don't be left behind. Don't leave your family behind wondering whether you're ever coming up out of your grave. And so, Father, teach us, challenge us, and grow us through these passages. Give us a growing understanding of these mystery doctrines, Lord. They're, they're glimpses, they're snippets. We're trying to put it together, so give us a growing grasp of what we're talking about here. Help us to live prepared lives that at any time this could happen. What an amazing reality. Challenge us through it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.